In this interview, I am joined by Mordi Levine, serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and author of The Tibetan Book of the Dead for Beginners with Lama Hanan, and published by Sounds True. Morty reveals the origins of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, considers the validity of the claims of its supernatural transmission, and pulls back the curtain on his own writing process in collaboration with Nyingma meditation master Lama Hanang. Morty discusses the subject of money and spirituality, and recounts his own journey from poverty and avarice to financial and business success, and beyond to a more enlightened view informed by Buddhist doctrines. Morty also addresses the range of dysfunctional money attitudes found in American Buddhism, such as aversive attitudes to money, based on beliefs that money is fundamentally unspiritual, immoral, and even evil. So without any further ado, Morty Levine. Morty Levine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm so delighted to be talking with you. And uh, this story of this episode is quite interesting indeed. We were going to discuss your new book, The Tibetan Book of the Dead for Beginners, A Guide to Living and Dying, which you co-wrote with Lama Hanang Rinpoche. And we were going to have an interview with the two of you together. And unfortunately, Lama Hanang was unable to make it. Uh, unfortunately for our existing plans, but I think fortunately, actually, because this gives us an opportunity to, yeah, we'll talk about the book. But I, I, you've also had a fascinating uh, and rich life, and I'm ex extremely curious about it. So this gives us an opportunity to uh, for me anyway, to quiz you on that and to ask you some questions ab about about your life. So I'm very pleased uh, to have you here. Thanks, Steve. You know, the way you said it made, made me start thinking, gee, maybe this is the end of my life. The way you know, this, and I'm thinking like, oh, is this it? We're, we're at the end here. I didn't realize that. Uh, I'm joking. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> this is the last podcast, my last day. I don't mu have much of an oracular track record, so I don't, not even an unintentional one. So I think we'd probably be say, yeah. but that's a good point. And that's a point you make here in this book that, uh, as the saying goes, one never knows what's next, tomorrow or death. This is a famous saying, I believe, of Tibetan origin. One never knows what's, what's next, tomorrow or death. And so this idea of being prepared for death and being aware of death's possibility is a theme that runs throughout this book. Um, Maybe we could start there, actually. Could you say a little bit, something about this book, how it, what, how it came to be, why the Tibetan Book of, of the Dead for Beginners? I mean, we've had many translations of this book. It's a well-worn theme uh, in publishing, although this is not a translation. In fact, there's sort of heart teaching here, commenting on the themes of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in fact, I think there's some very beautiful passages here. Um, how did this collaboration come to be? Um, what's the story behind uh, this book coming into being? Yes, thank you. So, uh, yeah, the you know the first year of the pandemic, I'm sure we all recall on TV at least watching, and sometimes in, in person, of course, watching a lot of people dying. Not only were a lot of people dying, but there were morgues set up, you know, on the city streets outside the hospitals because the hospitals couldn't handle the the volume. And I remember vividly seeing uh, them set up in Central Park, New York City, and Fifth Avenue, and and it was just insane. And we were not ready for it. We as a civilization, Western civilization specifically, not ready for it. We were all shocked, surprised uh, beyond. And especially if you had a loved one that was in one of those uh, morgues. And it occurred to me that the uh, Tibetan Buddhism really addresses death 
uh, quite frequently and uses it as a teaching. Not so much, hey, let's get ready. You might die tomorrow. You might die in 30 years. Let's get ready. That's true. But really the practices that we do to prepare ourselves for death are really the same practices we use to have a happy, joyful, fulfilling, peaceful life right now. Same thing. So, uh, you know, if I said to you, look, let's, I want you to devote the rest of your life so that when you die, <laughs> you have a, you have a good death. That's great. And some people go for that, but I go for the fact that, well, if I do these practices, these types of meditations, I look at the world a certain way, I can start experiencing joy right here, right now. I like that part. So I approached Lama and Lama Lanang and I said, Hey, you know, the world is upside down. I think they can use a dose of, from this book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Guru Rinpoche, written in the eighth century. Let's kind of redo it a little bit, make it more user-friendly for every religion, every person out there. And he said, let's do it. So that was kind of, um, that's how we started. I wonder if you might share a little bit about the process of collaboration. How did, what was the process you followed? How did you collaborate together on this book? Uh, well, the first thing I did was I had to read, <laughs> I had to read all the many different translations. I don't, I don't speak Tibetan. I, I can read Tibetan uh, barely. Um, so I started reading a lot of translations. And the first thing I noticed was uh, I didn't understand a lot of it. <laughs> it's very dense. And, um, and I had to go over it over and over again to, to really understand it. Um, and I realized very quickly that unless you have an extensive background in Tibetan Buddhism specifically, no one's going to understand these books. And in fact, that's whatever I, whenever I talk to people about the book, um, they say, yeah, yeah, I tried reading it. Couldn't, couldn't make heads or tails of it. So that was the first thing that I did. So I uh, at least understood the content, um, deeply as presented on the page. And then I started to pull out themes that I thought were, uh, very user-friendly and very, uh, effective and valuable, and then reviewed them in detail with Lama. At which point he would say, well, that's very good, but that's not quite how it works. <laughs> and then he, he would, he would, you know, correct me and explain to me what's really going on. Um, and, and that was a beautiful thing for me as a student to really understand uh, more than just what's on the page or more than what's just in what's in my mind. Oh, very interesting. So you were from your own study of the translations, the various translations, extracting various themes and then passing that to Lama Hanang for comment. Um, that's interesting. Often these sorts of collaborations involve a kind of transcription of, and then an editing down of a Lama's spoken teachings on a subject through from perhaps a teaching series. That's often how these sorts of collaborations are, are done. But this seems actually not quite like that collaboration, that, that style. It seems a rather different style of collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. And just to preface it by saying my background in, is, you know, 40 plus years of Buddhism, but a lot of that was really Zen and, um, and other flavors where they don't really talk about death in Zen. Zen is all about now, now, now. It's beautiful, beautiful practice. And I love it. But, you know, they ask them about, uh, you know, what happens when you die and they don't really answer you. Maybe they don't know, or maybe it's not relevant because it's all about now, now, now. And uh, studying Tibetan Buddhism, um, it's all about death, 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 and of course, practicing now, now, now for that. Uh, and, and in addition, I had been studying with Lama at that point for, I don't know, about five, five years or so. So I already had some of his teachings uh, under my belt 
so to speak. And that was very helpful. Um, if I didn't have that, like I said, if you go to read Tibetan Book of the Dead and you don't have a background in Tibetan Buddhism, very difficult to understand. So that that was super helpful that I was already studying with him. You know, whenever Tibetan Book of the Dead comes up, often something that also is mentioned is the uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert version of that, um, which was a, a sort of takeoff of the Tibetan Book of the Dead used for guiding psychedelic journeys in that in that heyday of of um, LSD experimentation and so on. I wonder if uh, if you have an opinion on that on that book as you got very deep into this uh, Bardo Tudel, as it's called. I definitely have an opinion on that. And, uh, you know, on one hand, it, it clearly is a work of art. It clearly broke ground. It clearly opened up the West more and more and more to this concept of what's going on um, and how and how they approach it with psychedelics. So from that perspective, it's phenomenal. Um, it's a classic. Um, my, now, now comes my critique, so to speak, which is I like the uh, original teachings. There's a certain power, I believe, to following the original path. So for example, uh, actually, I'm not going to give you a good, bad example. So let's just stay with that, that thought. So there's a lineage, which is from Guru Rinpoche. He's known as the second Buddha. Padma Sambhava is another name for him. He wrote the book. He didn't actually write it, but he, of course, taught, those are his teachings from the eighth century. They weren't discovered until the 14th century by another great master. And then it wasn't until about the 1900s, early 1900s, where it was first started to translate into English. From what I understand and from what I've read, not a good translation not accurate. So, um, but studying with the real deal, which is studying with Lama Lanung, you start to get the real accurate lineage of what's happening, not just from an informational perspective, which of course I'm, I'm a man of science, a man of math. I like, I like precision, accuracy, but there's an energy and a transmission that flows through from back in the eighth century to this moment. I like that. I don't like shortcuts. Um, I'm tempted by them. And, um, and I like authenticity, originality, nature. So if I said to you, hey, let's take some psychedelics. This is what we can experience. I think that might be fun and it might be interesting. But it's to me, it's not necessarily the path that I want. You mentioned the origin of the Bardo Todol there. Um, <clears throat> credited as it is to Padmasambhava, ultimately. Um, However, as far as I understand, it was a terma, a revealed uh, treasure text. Right. I'm wondering, you said you're a man of science and math. I wonder if you might explain a little bit about what that means and, and <laughs> how, how do you wrap your head around that sort of a claim of a revealed text? Well, maybe you could explain what a terma is sure. and then how it is, as, a, as you say, a man of science, you, you approach such a phenomena or a claim. Great. Thank you. And, and that's a wonderful question, by the way. I think you might be interviewing Lama Lanang in September. So that's a, I'd love to hear his answer. I usually give all the hard questions to him, by the way, when we do the, the, <laughs> the interviews together. So, uh, you know, there's a teaching, let's say a, a great master like uh, Padmasambhava or Guru, Guru Rinpoche uh, from the 8th century, he, he offers a teaching or even could be just even in his mind, doesn't even have to verbalize it. And it's out in the universe somewhere. You want to call it the big mind. You can call it whatever words you want to use. And then that signal, here we go. The 
that signal gets picked up at the appropriate time later on in uh, in the universe, in the world. In this case, it was picked up in the 14th century. There are other types of treasures that are revealed, and the people that find them are called treasure revealers, um, that are actually written down and hidden in the ground, in a cave, in a wall somewhere. And those are also discovered at the appropriate time later on when it's most needed. So that's the kind of the broad definition of terma. And Steve, feel free to correct me, if but that's my understanding of it. Um, now, how does a man of science wrap his or her head around that? My personal experience has been that there's more than what's going on out there than what we see, touch, and feel. And my personal experience has been uh, so great in, under, in, in the metaphysical world and what I've experienced um, that I can't ignore that. You know, so for example, um, we talk about rebirth in the book. A lot of people don't believe in rebirth and that's great. I'm not, I don't, we don't try to convince anyone. But when I look at all the children, many, many thousands, two, three, four years old that have clear memories of their prior lives without, of course, having lived in that city, town, spoken that language, known these other people from their prior lives, I can't ignore that either. Can I explain it? I believe I can explain it, not from my personal explanation, but from my teachers. So normally you might look at that and go, oh, that's some kind of metaphysical woo-woo that's going on rebirth. How does the consciousness get from one life to another? Can't explain it. Don't believe in it. Well, it is explainable, but even if you don't want to hear the explanation, we can't ignore the many thousands of children that do recount their, their prior lifetimes. So I kind of answered your question without answering it directly, but that's kind of how I look at it. I'm trying to trace exactly the contour of your argument, how it, how it relates to how the issue of rebirth relates to the issue of treasure revealers. You mean because uh, past lives is something not widely accepted, um, uh, should we say, in in a scientific materialistic framework, but you, you believe that there's significant evidence to at least reopen the question that this similarly falls into, this could be the, in that same case? I mean, some people say that... Uh, the treasure revealing tradition is a way of a culture which, um, in which authenticity or canonicity is associated with antiquity. For something to be authentic, it has to be, in a sense, as you say, sourced from a lineage, from a great master like, for example, Bambus and Baba, or traceable, at least claimed to be traceable to the Buddha, for example. So a certain tradition is a way of enabling a tradition to grow and evolve um, with canonical religious texts that are actually new. I would like to give you an example and we can see if we can come back to that. So, uh, you know, you and I are both on computers, right? And I see you, you see me and we, we know this is happening. I could, you know, if we're not quite sure, I'm going to fly out. I think you're in the UK somewhere, right? Yes. Uh, I'm going to fly out to UK tomorrow and I'm going to say, Steve, I'm pretty sure I saw you on the computer. Did I see you? And you said, yeah, that was me. Yeah. Okay, great. So we can kind of factual, turn that into a fact right now. Is hypothesis, and we'll turn it back. I can open up the computer and say, gee, how, did, how does this whole thing work? And I'll look at all the wires and the circuits, and I go, I don't know. But you, So we don't know what's going on, how it happened. 
because we're not programmers. So, but yet there you are on the screen. Here I am on the screen. So that's kind of my, to, to answer the question about how as does a man of science like you, Morty, really um, go for this stuff that's inexplainable? And yeah, I can't explain it, but nevertheless, the evidence is, is so strong so that I regard it as, as fact. As far as the, the, what, what's happening or how do those teachings fly through the universe, you know, 900 or, or uh, four, uh, from 800, so, you know, 1300 years later to us um, and how do they get revealed and things of that nature, you know, the, 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 uh, the most surface explanation that I have is there's the, there's the, here, here's another example, the radio, you know, I have a radio in my hand, maybe a walkie talkie, or I'm listening to some station. I'm not quite, and this it's, it's, it's wireless and yet it's traveling through the air. I can't see the frequencies, but it's there. And, and to me, that's probably the best um, description I can have of how do those teachings get to us today it's in the universe and obviously there's some power that's out there that can direct the time place um you know that that where it's going to travel who's going to see it things like that and i've been with enough great masters including lama lanang to see some to see and experience some very very strange things that can't be explained by you know the average uh, Western mind, and we can get into detail on that if you want, but I'm not quite sure how. I don't want to take you too far off track. Oh, you can take me as far off the track, whatever the track is, as you'd like. Um, that's yeah, that's very interesting. So that that you're hinting there at your own biography, and that's something I'd like to find. I'd like to ask you about. You've had a very interesting life indeed, and I suppose my last question: How important is the narrative of the treasure is a revealed teaching of Padmasambhava to you. In other words, if it was not a treasure revealer, but it was sim simply a text attributed to Padmasambhava in that, by that means, but it was sort of an original work, let's, let's say, uh, would that diminish its value to you personally? No, no, not at all. So, um, but I, I like the question. So um, the bottom line is I want to live a happy, I don't even like to use the word happy. I want to live a, a life free. I want to be free. What am I want to be free of? Free of fear, free of anxiety, free of irritation, free, a free mind, a big mind to enjoy my life, help other people, things of that nature. Implement compassion, be, be free. I don't like to use the word happy because that can imply lots of things that, you know, I'll give you a check for $10,000, Steve, you'd be happy for like a couple of minutes, maybe a day, two days, three days. Yeah. You know. So, so I'm interested in, in free and the, the teachings in the, um, in Bardo Todal or Tibetan book of the dead give us exactly that. They give us the recipe, the directions, the roadmap to get there. Do I know the cartographer of that particular map? Do I, it was, it was he, did he do it? Did someone else, uh, Yes, I think to some degree it is important because there is energy transmission that comes along with the teaching, but the teachings are so accurate and so valid and they work that for millions of people that, um, you know, it's all about the teachings in that regard. And even the Buddha, 
has said that, you know, the Buddha said, Hey, I'm going to come and go. I'm not going to be here forever. Um, and nothing was written down when he was alive. It was only till whatever, four or 500 years later that people started writing stuff down. Do we know the Buddha said it? Well, we kind of know, we think, we, I'm not quite sure, but his teachings stand on their own to bring us to liberation. And that's really the most important thing. Very interesting indeed. So if I understand you, the, te- the efficacy of the teaching is, is the most important to you. And as to regards the narrative of its origin, you're agnostic at the very least about that because you've seen a lot of strange things in particular around spiritual masters associated with those traditions. So you're willing to suspend your own capacity to explain and understand and at least entertain the possibility of, of this uh, term or origin. Absolutely. Have I hedged hedged too much? You're not agnostic. No, I I think what you said is accurate. accurate. I, I put the emphasis a little bit slightly differently, which is uh, because I have seen experienced in my own life, so many magical, it's not the right word because magic implies, well, we don't know what's going on. Oh, it's magic. Um, There are mechanisms that are at play that we just don't think about or look at, but they're there. And I've seen so much of that, that yes, I do uh, have a a strong belief, very strong belief that, yeah, it came from Padmasambhava Guru Mishra many years ago. Whether it did or didn't, doesn't really make a difference. At, the, at this point, could you say something about the? You mentioned an energy transmission that comes with the teaching, in addition to its, I suppose, sort of on paper conceptual value in terms of how how well the teachings help you do what they say they're there to do. Uh, could you say something about that energetic transmission? Um, so the best example I have, well, it's not the best, but probably the example that comes to mind is you know you fall in love with someone, or you meet someone. And there's no touching going on. There's no, you know, maybe you're gazing in their eyes. Maybe your eyes are closed. doesn't matter. But there's a feeling that you can get that's very palpable that can go back and forth between two people. There happens to be involved in that example, you know, maybe hormones and, and lust and, and things of that nature for sure. But nevertheless, there are things there going on. There's a communication going on between two people, as there can be for any two people. It doesn't have to be a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. It could be between parents and children or people that just like each other. There's some, there's other things going on besides, besides what we can see, touch, taste, and feel. So, and when you, exp- and so for people that have not experienced an energy transmission, um, you know, sometimes you go to a, 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 a sporting event and the crowd gets excited about something and you get excited too. So there's another example there where you can feel some energy um, coming from someone else. And in this particular case though, um, energy transmissions are great, but I think that they're, they're primarily to inspire people. They're not there or to see what's possible. They're not there so that you can just feel good. You know, although some of the energy transmissions make you feel good. They give you a little a little clear high. That's wonderful. But that's a side effect. We don't focus on that. We focus on what is the actual teachings there about? Are they about compassion? Are they about impermanence? Are they about um, certain practices about uh, to do right before you die? Um, whatever they're about, that's the crux of it. 
And whatever comes along that you might feel or an energy transition gives you that, let's say, well, you know, that fuel to go and learn, implement, and, and, and think more about it and take that teaching a little more seriously, possibly. <laughs> I always sense that I'm not giving you the answer you're looking for. But maybe but feel free to pr prod if I'm not. Um, I'm not really looking for an answer in specific when I'm asking you these questions. I'm not hoping you'll say something in particular. I'm really asking because I, I would like to know what you think about what I'm saying. Um, that's yeah. so actually there's, there's really no answer that you can give that would disappoint me in that sense. And if I have more questions, I can, I, I can ask them. I'm really interested in what you think about, about the question I'm posing you, whatever that might so, be. So I'll give you an, an example, which is, um, you know, at some level, you know, we're very, you know, I'm touching my skin now, you know, this is, I can feel this is very physical uh, life that we lead, but it's not that way for everyone. For some people, we're made of light. Now, when I look at you, I see you wearing a, a beautiful green shirt. I could see the color of your skin, but other people, when they're in a higher state of mind, they see those things, but they really see something else. And they see that really you're made of light. And if we were scientists, we can, maybe we would take out our microscopes and we'd see, what are they talking about? And maybe we'd find some things on a very deep level that we didn't uh, look at before. And as someone who is made of light and someone who does not have boundaries, physical boundaries, they don't perceive the world with physical boundaries. They don't perceive themselves with physical boundaries because they're in a very higher state of mind. Anything and everything is possible. And you can taste that sometimes when you're with those people. And that allows you to think and feel and move you a little bit more in that direction as well in terms of your spiritual practice, which leads us back to the other thing that I said, which is, hey, we just want to be free. So it kind of got, pushes you a little bit in that direction. Okay. Now, my curiosity is now reaching uh, fever pitch <laughs> as to okay. your own life. Your uh referring to some really remarkable experiences. So I'd, I'd be very curious to know how it was you came to be involved in, in all of this. So I know that you're highly successful entrepreneur, multiple companies, venture capital, incredible career in, in the world of, of business. That's very fascinating indeed. And a deep and profound spiritual religious life stretching back you said you've, you've been a Buddhist practitioner for 40 years. So I'm very curious about those two things side by side. That's fascinating indeed. So I'm very curious about that. I wonder if we might go back to your early life. What was the context of your upbringing? Did you always have a spiritual inclination? Um, were, you, did, were you open to that? Did something happen to open you to that? So I'm very curious how you on-ramped in, into that direction. and. I mean, I don't know if we'll have time to investigate your, your business life too, but it's also a fascinating story. So the degree to which that can be brought in, I, I think would be very, very interesting as well. So I bumped into Buddhism when I was in graduate school. I went to University of Chicago Business School 
and I was 21 years old. And uh, unbeknownst to myself, I was very unhappy. But you, I just didn't know it. And uh, you know, now, of course, you walk around, you meet people, then you tell they're angry, and, and they just don't know that they're walking around angry. So I was a clearly, and I know after the fact, I was clearly un, unhappy. But I was also driven. And a guy that I met in graduate school in the first couple of weeks there said, you know, hey, I, uh, I run a karate club. You want to you try it? It's free. I said, it's free? I said, karate? Yeah, yeah, let's try that. You know, I'm, I'm, from, I was from, I'm from Brooklyn. You know, I had this view of myself, a tough guy from Brooklyn. Oh, it's karate stuff. <clears throat> I went to class and within about 10 or 15 minutes, I was, I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. I, I'm not going to make it through. It's a two-hour class. I'm exhausted already. I couldn't believe how hard it was. And by, you know, for whatever reason, I made it through. And I'm never coming back. This is ridiculous. Um, you know, how hard these things are. But after class, I remember walking home. I was just happy, so happy, so clear, so at peace. I'd never experienced that before. And I said, I got to go back. And I went back and I had the same experience. I was miserable. And I kept, but it, and little by little, I started realizing that I had grown up, so to speak, in a box. Um, and this kind of showed me a little bit of light out, you know, a hole in the box until eventually, hopefully one day the box disappears. So that's how I was introduced. To, and it was a very traditional Japanese martial arts class. So a lot of times maybe there was no talking even. Uh, maybe it was only in Japanese, depending who was teaching. Uh, so there, it was really Zen, uh, Zen Buddhist flavored. And that's kind of how I bumped into Zen Buddhism. And um, yeah, and I don't know where I'd be without that. I made it through graduate school and I kept practicing martial arts. And I started practicing every day, sometimes two or three hours a day, not only in class, so then we'd go to special trainings where you'd practice five days in a row, seven days in a row, you know, almost, you know, 18 hours out of 24. And you'd have these experiences in your mind about, you know, how free we can be about what's possible about all of the, uh, uh, all of the uh, stickiness that we have in our body and our mind sometimes about all these um, restrictions we put up and these requirements we have in the stories and the ego we tell ourselves. And that started to fade. And it started to fade as I started to meditate. And in fact, in that class, we would meditate before and after class. And I've been meditating now for, you know, um, pretty much my whole life as a Buddhist. And meditation is, in addition to the teachings that we've talked about earlier, is really the crux of that. Because the only thing that can make you happy in life is your state of mind. Yeah, all this other stuff we have going around about us, yeah, I can make you a little short-term taste of happiness. But, but really, that's not true long-term um, happiness. Happiness can only be uh, in your state of mind and your state of mind is the only thing you can control. And those two maxims um, are, are, the more I can really, really latch onto that, sometimes we forget that, then, um, then the more free we will be in our lives. So um, just to repeat it, uh, your state of mind is the only thing that can make you happy in life. And the only thing you can control in your life is your state of mind. So we retrain our mind day by day, moment by moment um, to be in the present moment, uh, to reduce the stories and the ego that we that's always propping us up, to reduce our selfishness. Selfishness is synonymous with negative karma. 
And selflessness is synonymous with positive karma. So the less self-centered we can be, the more free we can be, the more good karma we can accumulate, and the more joyful we, lives we can, we can live. It seems quite early on in your martial arts training, you, you recognized a value to the training beyond just the ability to punch and kick and so on and whatever efficacy that might have for self-defense or uh, you know, fighting and so on. Um, I'm curious about that journey, uh, that aspect of it. Uh, you were meditating in class there, and you said you've also had a Buddh uh, Zen Buddhist practice. So how did that evolve from those initial days in the martial arts dojo to subsequent Zen Buddhist practice? So I started to do a lot of reading, and there was no internet back in the day. So a lot of reading uh, on Zen. And then when I moved to New York City shortly thereafter, I started going to a Zen uh, a Zen Buddhist uh, temple, and we'd dress up in these robes, and we would it was very formal, and that really gave me a very strong taste as well, and did that for quite some time, um, and then eventually found um, other teachers, specifically in the Tibetan Buddhist world, um, and that it's interesting, even though they're teaching kind of the same thing, they're approaching it very, very differently then um and it's all beautiful it's all good you just find the right path that works for you to get to the top of the mountain and and that's the path you take so they're clearly both buddhism both authentic both wonderful beautiful teachings um but i became more and more attracted i think to the tibetan buddhist world my guess is thinking about it because there's uh maybe i was attracted to the magic that um can can be seen and felt in those worlds um, I don't want to use the word magic implying, oh, we don't know how that happens. Oh, that's magic. Or there's some trick there. I'm not saying that, but there's more more uh, that I experienced that initially was very difficult to explain, but was quite wonderful and beautiful. And I, I said, gee, I want that. And that's kind of um, my sense of how I got involved. And then eventually with Lama Lanang, of course. Could you say a little bit more about your, your Zen period? How long did that last? Yeah, I actually, I was not ordained um, in, in Zen at all. And my guess that lasted probably uh, maybe maybe six months, but it had a huge impact on me because here I was in Brooklyn, living in Brooklyn, and um, maybe your viewer, listeners don't necessarily know what that's like, but you can imagine. And then you walk into this building and the whole, and you, you're in Japan and you're in a, all of a sudden you're in a formal monastery in Japan like I said, they gave me the robe. Everyone wore the robes, whether you were there the first time or 20 times or 2000 times. And I just did what everyone else did. And, um, and the experience actually was not physically pleasant because we were all sitting on a uh, meditation cushion, which I wasn't used to, but I was able to before and after class really see and experience what those people were like. And they were different than everyone I had known. There was a certain calmness, confidence, peace, and I think more than anything, more than anything else, I think that's probably what attracted me to continue to learn uh, more and more about uh, what's going on here in this Buddhist world. I did take vows, of course, as a, um, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist, oh, probably about maybe 15, 18 years ago when I was studying with a Tibetan Buddhist um, a Geshe. Uh, when I lived in Florida. Um, so I did take vows. Uh, it's called taking refuge. 
um, but certainly not ordained um, and certainly not ordained as a teacher either. either. And so what time in your life was this six months of Zen involvement? I was probably 20, 24, 25. Yeah, I'd been doing the martial arts every day. And I said, gee, this is great. All the punching and kicking and sweating like crazy. And, um, but I, but they didn't talk much about it because, you know, they didn't really, they didn't get into any, what's, what's really going on. Um, and, but if you stayed around long enough, which was many, many years, that's when you figured out, oh yeah, it's not just punching and kicking. You can actually manipulate energy, understand energy better, overcome your fears your anxieties, things like that. Very interesting indeed. So at the end of your six months Zen period, did you go straight into becoming involved in Tibetan Buddhism? Was there a gap there? There was definitely a big gap there where I had no teacher and I was just, all I was doing is reading and practicing karate, reading and practicing karate. And then eventually I started doing some boxing. It's a gym in Brooklyn called Gleason's Gym, very famous gym, probably one of the first ones. Uh, a lot of Olympians came out of there and I wanted to see what that was all about as part of my martial arts training. And uh, I don't know how I digressed into that topic, but I did that for a little while. And um, um, yeah, and then uh, continued my martial arts training until probably the 90s. So whatever that is, is you know, 20 years ago. Um, but somewhere after that is when I started to look around for a teacher and and found Tibetan Buddhism. Could you say something about that process? Who were the first teachers you encountered? And much is written about the search for the teacher and uh, right. the circumstances in, in which one finds the teacher and so on. There's lots of uh, written about that, including in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So I'm curious about that, about that process of searching and who you encountered. I knew from reading that doing it on your own was not going to happen. I knew that, you know, everyone, everyone, like you just said, everyone says, oh, you, you need a teacher, you need a teacher. And you have to have the right teacher and all that. So th I think the story that's most interesting to me on that topic is um, how I met Lama Lanang. I know we're kind of going fast forward a little bit, but I had been studying with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher in uh, Florida in Deerfield Beach. And he was a wonderful man. Um, I didn't feel any strong connection with him, honestly, but I, but I, but I said, you know, I got to give it time. And I went and I took my uh, refuge vows with that gentleman. Um, but when I came to move to California a while ago, I said, oh, I got to find a teacher. And then eventually I, I said, you know, um, I wasn't quite sure, you know, there's like 30 or 40 different communities here in San Diego. Wasn't which, sure which one I would fit into. I studied with a Zen group for a while and that was, that was a beautiful thing. Um, but I realized that I really needed to know more about death because I, I turned, uh, I was about to turn 60 and I said, oh, this is interesting. I'm coming into the last, you know, rounding the bend here, you know, coming to the last third of my life or something like that. And what's going to happen? And I knew, you know, that uh, Tibetan Buddhism talks a lot about death and I knew about the bardo or the afterlife and rebirth, but I didn't know other than those words and one sentence about them. I didn't know anything about it. I said, oh, I got to find the guy that knows all about this stuff. That's who I need to learn with, or, you know. So I went to, <laughs> I went to, and then, I, and then I, you know, went online and saw all the different uh, communities, and I said, "Oh, there's a guy, Lama Nang, and and they have a class in the the, the local park here, Balboa Park. It's kind of like Central Park in New York City." 
And I went there and I'm looking at the guy teaching and uh, I said, that can't be him. But, but what do I know? And in fact, it wasn't him. It was one of his students. Uh, but I was able to feel there's something else going on here. I could feel that. I knew that. And that kept bringing me back, kept bringing me back until finally I was able to meet Lama Lanang. And um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it was the first, the first or second time that I met him. He was giving a talk, a public talk, and I had volunteered to help out set up the talk. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't met him personally. Oh, hi, Morty. This is none of that. And someone said, you know, Morty, can you set up a lamp behind Lama's back so he can see? So I said, sure. And I said, bring, carry this big torch lamp over, you know, a floor lamp over to him. And I look and I'm, and I'm carrying it and I look at him and he looks at me and he slowly looks up and I look up too. What's he looking at? And the torch lamp that I was carrying was starting to wibble and was about to fall on his head. <laughs> and he knew this. So I, I quickly look up and I, I, I stopped what I was doing. So I, you know, and put it in place. And there was, uh, it was very funny, not at the time, but um, there was a calmness and a confidence there. You know, if it was me, I'd say, hey, hey, yeah, hey, hey, the lamp, you know, but it was, there was, it was just a very like, okay, you know, totally matter of fact about it. And then, of course, you know, many conversations and uh, classes and teachings later and experiences later, you know, did I realize that I had the, I, at that time I knew, okay, it's my teacher. Um, um, but of course that, that deepens as you go. That's very interesting indeed. And that was, you say, five or six years ago? About six years ago. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. And how did your relationship with Lama Hanang unfold from there, from that meeting? It's sometimes said that great, you know, good teachers are hard to find, uh, but also good teachers in, are often in high demand. And um, accessing a high, you know, a, a teacher, a, a wonderful teacher is finding one is one thing, but accessing him is another. So I'm curious how your relationship with Lama Lanang unfolded. So yeah, Lama Lanang is, is actually quite different in that way. He's very open, very welcoming. Anyone, everyone, Buddhist, non-Buddhist, doesn't matter. He, he, I don't really think he differentiates. You know, wherever he meets, like he looks at them and he feels whatever he feels, and and, and it's quite beautiful. Um, and I think he's also under the radar. I don't know if that's intentional or not, meaning he doesn't go out there and, you know, we, we set up a lot of events for him. But he's not out there. Hey, guys, we have to go. You know, let's go set up this event. We need to do. He, of course, has suggestions on how on things we can do to help people like the homeless and refugees and all these other programs. But they're always about the program, not about him promoting himself. And I think um, <clears throat> myself and others from our community uh, kind of recognize that. And the uh, and as a result, because he has so much to offer. Um, uh, people in terms of liberation, freedom, joy, happiness, overcoming their their fears, their negativities. Um, we do our best to get him in front of the public as much as possible, and he's always happy to do that. But he's not out there, he's you know promoting himself at all. And in some ways, that's a shame. But I understand from his pers perspective, eh, you know, whoever comes will benefit. They don't come, that's okay. You know, we we've done programs with him where incredible number of people show up. And I'm always thrilled with that 
because it's a way for us to grow our community. And then we've done other programs there where we've put an incredible amounts of time, money, energy, you know, it's like, and six people show up. And I, you know, I, I asked after a time or two of that, I said to him, I said, you know, it's very disappointing. He goes, oh, no, no, it's all good. They came, they benefited. It's all good. He had no, no problems. One person shows up, 200 people. It's like same to him. And I appreciate that mentality. You know, my mentality is more for my ego. Oh, we need more people. You know, more people have to meet Lama, you know? And he's just like, no, that's okay. It's all good. You know, five people. It's good. Great. Good job. <laughs> Plus your mode from your, your business career, you know, founding and, and developing companies into multi-million dollar offerings. That is, that is quite a mode, actually. That vision, that scope, that um, ability, that talent, or whatever the case may be. That, you know, coming into a situation like that, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting pairing. Someone with your vision and scope in the business world involved with Lama Langan in this, in this way. It's, uh, that must be a very fascinating meeting. Yeah. So what's interesting about the business world and certainly how I started out in it was purely selfish. You know, I want to make more money. I want money. It's about me, 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 money, money, money. Nothing wrong with money. Depends what you do with it and what your motivation is. But at the time, the motivation was clearly uh, selfish to uh, enrich myself and my family. And over time, I'd say, especially the last 10 or 15 years, Yes, you do go into business to, to make money. You can't survive in business losing money. Um, so you do need to make money, but the goals have started to change and shift, which is along the way, let's do it, of course, ethically. Let's place more emphasis on that, on taking other people into account more so than just making money. Having said that, the mentality that I have and what led to the success that I've had has been applied uh, now that I'm the president of Jigma Lingpa Center, which is the uh, uh, which is the organization that Lama Lanang um, is the director and the founder of, um, I've brought a lot of those tools to the organization, which is implementing programs, having them be successful, um, making money if that's a goal for that program, or at least making money so that we can go use that money somewhere else to help people. So in 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 many ways. That has been um, a great uh, a great asset to the organization, because without that, without money, yeah, we could just sit there and meditate all day, and we'd probably stay at five, six, or seven people, you know, meditating, and may or may not grow. So, um, so in that regard, we we put those skills to good use. Where do you think that drive, that tremendous drive and passion to make money, which you've described as uh, you've described it, in your words, as a selfish kind of orientation to enrich yourself, in a sense, and that that's changed over time. Where did where did that drive, tremendous drive, come from in your the early stages of your of your business career? When I was growing up, we were poor, and I grew up in a community. I went to a school where there are a lot of wealthy people, and that became very obvious to me. Uh, probably, I guess, around ten, eleven years old where you know, we'd sneak out of school to go get pizza and at the corner pizza shop, except I didn't have any money. So I'd borrow from my friend who, or friends who were wealthy, yeah, for a dollar, get a slice of pizza, whatever it was. And that, and then I, you, of course you go to their homes, they look very different than your home. 
And that mentality really, or that uh, compare and contrast really followed me through um, college, where once again, I was with other friends who were very wealthy and I was not. And that was the driving force behind business school and everything I did after that. Um, until I realized that having the number of successes that I've had didn't solve that problem. <laughs> you think, okay, once you make X number of dollars, okay, I'm good. I don't need to do that anymore. Except once you're on that cycle, once you're on that wheel, the, the operating system's already in place. The addiction is already there. The grasping cling is there. You're not getting rid of it just because you have X dollars in the bank. Um, you're addicted. So um, that realization together with getting off that wheel um, is really what uh, what's transpired, I'd say the last you know, 10 years or so. That's very interesting indeed. So you had, you got the money, the thing that you felt from age 10 so, so acutely, that, that lack, that differential, you got the money, you were in that category. There was no mm -hmm. differential anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And it didn't solve the problem. What was the problem then? If it wasn't the number in the bank account, or was it partly the number of the bank account? What were you able to discover as the problem when you had that money? And there was no, no longer any difference between you and your wealthy friends in the terms of money. Right. For short story, I have a friend of mine who's a therapist and he has a client who's a, a billionaire. And uh, one time he, he, in, in their sessions, he said, you know, the client was saying, you know, I was talking to my neighbor and, uh, you know, told me he's only worth 20 million. He goes, how, 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 how does he make ends meet? You know, and, you know, he was really, um, really concerned about that. So I find that so humorous, but that's me. Not, I'm not a billionaire, not even close, but that's, that was my mentality. It's like, ah. I was like, I, how can he do it? How does he make ends meet? He's only worth 20 million. So, you know, and you look around today, you know, at, the, at our uh, politicians or our businessmen, you know, uh, Elon Musk and Donald Trump and all these incredible businessmen, Trump, maybe not so. Uh, and they're out there still going, 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 got to make more, got to make more, got to make more. And that's a problem. So once you start that operating system, once you're addicted, you're addicted regardless of what the scorecard says. And that's not the way to freedom. That's just the way to more addiction. So um, does that answer your question? I know I kind of digressed a little bit. No, you didn't digress at all. It's, it's actually very interesting. Okay. What okay. is it that you're addicted to then if it's not the scorecard? The grasping and the clinging to feed and support the stories that are in your mind of who you should be or who you should not be, what your requirements are to the world. And once you go down that road and you keep going down that road, you, there, it's a habit. That's truly what it is. It is a habit. And yeah, so so when something becomes a habit, it's very difficult to break. First, you have to recognize that you have a habit. Then you have to recognize that it's not a healthy habit. And then you got to find the answers to break the habit. And initially, you know what the answers are? Go make more money. Oh yeah, I'm going to break that. Yeah, let's go make more money. And and when at some points in time, you know, you sell a company, something happens where you you make more money, you do feel good. So you do get rewarded, 
there is some sugar in there. There's some sweetness there. There's some short-term joy or happiness. Joy is not the right word. Short-term feeling good. So you get rewarded and that keeps you on the, the wheel of addiction until you realize that, oh, this is not, this is an addiction and this is not true happiness. And this is, has nothing to do with fears. If anything, it continues to um, ingrain the fears and anxieties that you have. And that's when you start, we, or I start to realize, okay, I'm going down the wrong path. You know, a lot of people preach this sort of an idea that, well, you can try to make money if you think, and it's not going to make you happy in the end, but it's not all of those people who've actually done it um, and can say that. It's easy, in other words, to say that from the position of not having any, <laughs> I suppose. It's a bit hypothetical. Do you think, in order to realize this, do you think it's necessary to achieve that that material success is it necessary to exhaust that means of achieving happiness to really see through it as you're describing having done is it necessary to scratch that itch before you can move past it do you think so or is it possible for somebody to listen to what you're saying for example and ha having not walked that path uh, rather maybe put it another way if you had said to the 24-year-old Morty what you're saying, what you've realized now, if you said that to him, do you think he would get it? Or, or did you have to go through that to really get it? Yeah, no, I was already hooked. I was already suckered into it. And the suckering came in really from my parents because, you know, we were, uh, my family is a, a, a Jewish and, and religious. And I remember sitting in synagogue with my mother and she would point out, the people in the synagogue and say, oh, that guy over there is worth a lot of money. And that one over there, he's he, the doctor. And then she'd point out all these people. And then, um, and so that was, and I was always encouraged to do that by my, uh, certainly by my mother. So I was inculcated early, early on. So at that point at 24, it was too late. Had I been, uh, you know, um, direct, redirected at the age of three, four, five, then I have a chance, but no, it was too late. So the, the momentum was there. That's the problem. The momentum was there and even, and even, and the momentum's even there now, you know? So, but then you look at someone like Lama Lanong and he's like, you know, and he not only has said this to me, but I've seen enough of his life to know that it's true. Yes. He has a family and he takes care of them and he takes care of them quite beautifully, of course. But he doesn't care about himself in that regard. Eh, if I have to walk, if I have to be homeless, I'll be homeless. And in fact, for many years in, uh, I don't know if it was India or Nepal, he was a homeless monk. He would just like live off the land, sleep where, you know, in the cave, eat the food from the, the mountainside. Um, so, you know, and I've seen him be extremely generous financially with very, very little money that he has. It's just not, that's just a, a, a means he has he's on the other extreme where it's just not there it's important of course and today we live in the west you know homeless people in the west are not treated very well um as opposed to homeless people let's say in india they, they're treated somewhat better there um or nepal so you know i look at his case um and, and that to aspire to um but yeah by the age of 24 i was already i was already too far too far gone and I don't want to make it sound like it's a bad thing um, to earn making money. That should, but one has to look at one's motivation 
And maybe if I learned early on that, hey, look, if your motivation is purely selfish, if your motivation is just about making money, seeing how wealthy you can get in a short period of time, you're going to find yourself to be very, very unhappy. Here are some practices you should start doing now to reduce that addiction. And I, and, and if I it came from the right person at the right time and I started to do that, I'd be in a very different place, uh, certainly years ago and, and probably now as well. I wonder, was there a particular event or a series of events that influenced this, these insights that you've been saying in the last 10, 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, you've, mm -hmm. you said this change, this change of mind. I wonder, did some, did some things happen uh, to encourage that or, or not? And the other thing is, when you begin to unravel that conditioning that you're describing, you said it goes right back to your childhood. It's woven into some of the fabric of, of one's identity or one's sense of one's identity. So I wonder what happens there when you start to question that level of conditioning in oneself, that level of who you are and what gives you worth and value and so on, that sort of thing. Um, I'd imagine that sort of thing might, might even precipitate something of an existential struggle of some type, this deep level of, uh, of conditioning. So I'm curious, really, what effects these insights had on your identity or sense of yourself and who you are and what it means to be Morty and what it means to be, to live your life. I think there are a couple of things in, in life that maybe opened my eyes a little bit. No great epiphany, but several, uh, we'll call it smaller epiphanies, you know, when um, a member of my household would be ill. Uh, uh, close to dying, um, uh, in the hospital, various sicknesses, things like that, that puts things in perspective very effing quickly. Instantaneous, instantaneous. Things become very genuine, authentic. And then you got, and then as you slowly come out of that, get back into your addiction. <laughs> You start realizing, oh, okay, which is the right mentality, state of mind to have? What's really important here? So I think those little epiphanies played a role. But honestly, I, I think it was just a long road of a lot of meditation and a lot of learning from um, my Buddhist teachers, and which I just couldn't ignore. You know, if someone says to me, um, you know, if you go outside when it's really cold, you're going to need a jacket. And I say, ah, I don't need the jacket. But then you go outside and it's really cold. You know, I lived in Chicago. I remember speaking of which, and I remember my first couple of months there, I heard on the news, it's going to be really cold, like negative 60 with the wind chill. Uh, that's Fahrenheit. And I'm thinking, ah, not going to be a big deal. Because once again, I'm from New York. I've been cold before. And I remember <laughs> going outside and I walk about 10 steps and I go, oh my God, this is, this is very, very painful. I really shouldn't be out here. Quickly ran back home. And, you know, so, so when someone tells you something like that and you learn that it's true, you have to follow that. The next time someone says it's negative 60 out, I know what that means. And I'm going to go. So the same thing here, as the teachings became more and more true in my mind, I just immediately would start to work on getting rid of the uh, extra weight that I had and an incorrect view of life in myself. So I think that was the combination of things that spurred me on to, you know, um, to my path, which is of course still a very large work in progress.
that answers your first question, I think. Uh, if you could remind me what the second question was, there's a part B to that. Yes. What's the effect of that on one's sense of oneself? Uh, who is Morty if when those when right. those behaviors, when those patterns, when those addictions, as you put them, are unraveled or softened? Who who's underneath all this? And what what effect does that so, have on identity? Yeah. So when I look at that, I realize that all of those senses of who I was or who I think I am or who I want to be, it's all an illusion. It's all BS. The more I latch on to Morty is a very important businessman. Hmm. Excuse me. I'm a very important businessman. This is how Morty is when he's an important businessman. This is the kind of thing. Guess what? That's BS. So all the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, I'm a good father. I'm a, uh, you know, uh, this is how I do things. I'm a good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now some of that may be true, but the problem is we buy into those stories and that sense of who we are so strongly becomes almost a requirement that when we bump up against something, first of all, it's impossible to, uh, for those to be facts, but we take them as facts. We take them very solidly and very permanently, but nothing in that world is a fact. And when we recognize that our view of ourself, that there really is, you know, we hold on to it, but, um, but when in, in Buddhism, you know, some people say, Oh, Buddhism says there is no self. And the answer to that is, well, there is a self. It's just not the, what you think it is. So my sense of self it became so solid of who I thought I was. And little by little, I realized that I was illusory. It was unhealthy. Um, sometimes I'm a good businessman. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm a good father. Sometimes I'm not. That sense of open-mindedness allows you to live a more, uh, well, there's that word happy again, a more joyful, peaceful, free life. Because when I have that strong sense of who I am, I'm a strong business, I'm a, and then all of a sudden the, the pandemic comes and knocks 95% of your business away, well, that's out of your control. So we kind of learn, hopefully in, in Buddhism, to be more open-minded, less opinionated, less holding on so strongly to who we think we are. Yes, this is so interesting to hear you describe this, this particular aspect of your own of your own insights as they've developed over the years you know sometimes you've used the word addiction a lot and that's a very strong word some of the definitions of addiction is you can't stop when you know even if you want to another aspect of it is that the, the behavior harms other aspects of one's life how do i know if i'm addicted to something well you know i do it even when it's not good for me i do it even when it hurts others and i do it you know one of the other aspects of addiction at least from a clinical point of view so I'm wondering, why do you describe it as an addiction? And did it have the hallmarks of addiction, for example, damaging other aspects of your life uh, to serve your addiction? Yeah, so let's use the word addiction as synonymous with grasping and clinging habits. That's how I, well, you know, it might be easier, might be less, it sounds better <laughs> than addiction. <laughs> you know, we have these grasping and clinging habits that we think serve us well, maybe in the short run, maybe they served us well in childhood, maybe they served us well, you know, in uh, in our, our 20s and 30s, but at some point they don't serve you well because that grasping and clinging is based upon selfish desire. 
and based upon holding on to things that are illusory. So they're set up for failure. But the more you believe in them, the more factual they become in your mind. And that's the problem. So, um, or as Mark Twain says, it ain't what you know that gets in, in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> I love that. You know, um, like I said, it's so interesting to hear you to talk about this theme. In, should we say, religious circles, spiritual circles, however you want to characterize that, there are a lot of interesting ideas about money. And it's almost a cliche that money is sometimes seen as uh, as bad, uh, evil, uh, in some senses, unspiritual. Let's put it that way. Unspiritual. Money is unspiritual. I think sometimes implied in the dana model of donation, which is common in religious the religious economy, if you like, at least in certain certain aspects of it, there's a sense of we can't charge for this. Uh, it's dana, and there there could be. I think underneath of that, of course, a beautiful idea, dana. But underneath of that, there can sometimes be a, a reticent, a reticence uh, towards money, an aversion to it. Actually, a sense of I don't want to dirty my hands with that. Don't want to involve myself in. Sometimes there can even be, certainly in American Buddhist circles, an, an explicitly anti-capitalist ideology that's expressed as well. Perhaps that's another thing. When, when you look around and you see the different ways in which religious uh, people, particularly say American Buddhists, relate to money, what do you observe? You had an idea of pursuing money and making as much money as you possibly could. And you realized having made a lot of money and been very successful that there was, that wasn't quite giving you what you'd hoped. It wasn't quite, as you say, solving the problem. Um, what do you make of the other attitudes of money that I've described? Do, 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 have you observed that? Do, am I onto something here with this uh, description? Oh yeah, oh totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, when the Dalai Lama came to the United States a long time ago, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, and at the time, the Democrats and the Republicans, the two parties in the United States were, of course, at odds with each other in a very uh, severe way. Uh, not to compare it to today's situation. And was, uh, at a press conference, someone asked him, uh, you know, what do you make of this? You know, Democrats say this, Republicans say that. And he said, oh, you know, because I don't really see a difference. I don't see a difference. They're the same, to, you know, he phrased it better than that because I don't, they, they look the same to me. They feel the same to me. He didn't go into detail, but from which I in, inferred, you know, this grasping and clinging, everyone just wants what they want. They think their side is better. And of course, you know, um, the same thing is true here in this scenario. All the people that they have money, 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 it's so important. You know, I want more money. Well, we know there's grasping and clinging there. And the people like, oh, oh, money's bad. No, no money for me. <clears throat> we got to give away all our money quickly. It's going to make you, you know, money's the devil. We don't use those words, but some people, that's how they treat it. Um, that's the same thing. It's just grasping and clinging of a different flavor. So what comes down to it is motivation. It all comes down to motivation. If your motivation is selfless, I want to make money so I can help others. Or I have money 
other people can use it. Let me give some of it away so other people can benefit. Then those two motivations are beautiful. And that's synonymous with good karma because it's selfless, not self-centered. And the, and the reverse is true as well. I got to give away money because it's bad for me. And, uh, and anyone who holds on to money is an evil person and they don't understand money. Well, that's self-centered as is of course, the people that want to make money and, and buy more stuff for themselves. So it's not about the money. It's like the book, uh, Lance Armstrong, famous cyclist. I love, you know, the title of his book. Um, it's not about the bike, <laughs> you know, yeah, he's fam- I don't know if you know, but famous uh, cyclist, uh, Lance Armstrong, you know, one of the, okay. One of the greatest in the world. He wrote a book. It's not about the bike. And guess what? It's not about the money. It's about how you treat it, how you view it. What's your motivation? What would you advise for people who would like to investigate the, what you've just said there and say, well, okay, I love money. I'm chasing money or I'm very anti-money or I'm not sure what I am. I haven't really thought about it. How would you advise somebody to investigate their motivation uh, to ascertain whether or not their relationship to money, whether it's for or against is self-centered as you've characterized it or selfless. And how might one begin to work with that or to soften the hand of the grasping hand to, to, you know, relax, open the grasping hand, how, how best to go about that? Of course, would you just recommend general, generic Buddhist teachings, or is there something specific uh, that was useful for you? I'm curious about that. Well, I think in order to, I think there's two, two parts to the answer. Part one is you have to recognize your level uh, where you are and be aware of it. So, you know, um, and that takes introspection, probably a good meditation, a regular consistent meditation practice. So you kind of have a sense of what's going on in your mind. We're not, we don't want to trick ourselves. Um, and, and, and some study, maybe a teacher, of course, can always, you know, help you find out more about yourself and know, where are you? What, are, what's your real view? What's your motivation? What are you thinking about? How important is, it doesn't have to be money. It could be sex. It could be relationship. It could be grasping and clinging shows its face everywhere. So once you have an understanding of that and your awareness there, then the next question is, okay, what do you do about it? How do you, as you said, start to soften, and I like the way you said that, your grasp, because what a lot of people do is they immediately swing to the other side and it's like, oh, okay, um, you know, I'm 10 pounds overweight. Oh, I'm going to start fasting for, you know, 24 hours a day for 17 days. And, you know, they go swing to the other side and that never works. So what you want to do is you want to go toward the other side, whatever that other side is, or really you want to go to the middle path, the middle way. And there's various antidotes, which I love about um, Buddhism or really Tibetan Buddhism, but Buddhism in general, which is, hey, if you have this problem, this is what you can do to help it. Um, And you can start looking at some of the antidotes, which is, hey, you know, uh, you have a lot of money, you have trouble, you're attached to money, why don't you start giving some of it away? Oh, you don't want to give away $100? Oh, you don't want to give away $1,000? No problem. Give away $5. Give away $2. Whatever it is. Um, you know, whether it's to a homeless person or to a, a, a nonprofit organization, doesn't matter. You get into that habit. You're starting to break the bad habit with counteracting it with an antidote, um, maybe $5 a month. You write out a check or however they do it these days. $5 not enough for you? Great. Make it 25 Make it 100 depending on what your level's at. Make it so that maybe you're just a little touch uncomfortable. Too uncomfortable is no good. 
you know, if you're in your comfort zone, you want to break out of your comfort zone, you go too far outside your comfort zone, you experience panic, fear, anxiety, but you just step a little bit outside your comfort zone and that's where you can learn something. So it's a, it's a balance. And what would you advise for those who have a more aversive relationship to money? The type we described, you know, oh no, money's bad, money's 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 dar not dharmic and so on, money's you know evil and so on. Money's the devil, I think you said. What would you advise for those, a way of stepping slightly out of their comfort zone, perhaps? How would you advise th those sort of people? I think it's good to look at your mind and understand um, that that's just another form of grasping and clinging and holding on to some type of illusory opinion and view. Because uh, clearly, it's not money per se, but what do you do with it? And if you look at, you know, the joy, that the, the life that can be brought um, in the world of science, in the world of health, in the world of feeding people around the globe, in, you know, helping the homeless and the refugees, guess what? We're giving out blankets in Tijuana last year. We had to go buy those blankets from someone. Uh, that oh, we had to use money for that. So, you know, and uh, they didn't cure this type of cancer or that type of illness, you know, hey, let's all get together and just do this for free. It's just, a, that's just not how, so there's the relative and the absolute, the relative world we live in requires the use of money and hopefully the, uh, a skillful use of money. So once we recognize that it is a form of grasping and clinging, that it's not healthy, that we could be healthier, that we could live in a balance, let's not just give all of our money away, let's not start hoarding money either, then you can start to adjust and use the appropriate antidote. But I think it's good to have a sense of what reality is. And reality is that a lot of money doesn't make you happy or joyful or liberate you, and no money doesn't do that either. And in fact, that's what happened in the life of the Buddha, right? So for whatever it was, he, he ran away from the palace. And then for six years or so, whatever it was, he lived as an ascetic until he realized this is not happening. Not happening. This is wrong. You know, boom, middle way. Came up with the middle way. And, um, you know, the story goes on from there. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't make this stuff up. I just take it from my other teachers. And your own life experience, undoubtedly. And it's really wonderful to hear you. For sure. Thank you for sharing so generously from your own biography and how, how these principles have, have, have percolated through your own experience. It's really marvelous. You know, uh, I think we're coming towards the end of our time and this has been so fascinating. Thank you. And uh, an unusual or unexpected direction we went. Uh, thanks to, uh, you know, we planned, of course, to interview both you and Lama Lahanang about your, your new book, which is a wonderful book, by the way, Tibetan Book of the Dead for Beginners. Beautiful Great. passages in here. I particularly liked the uh, passages to do with helping those, supporting loved ones as they approach death and supporting the, um, supporting the dying from afar, practices as death approaches. That particular, I think, very beautiful, poignant and concise advice for how to support those uh, who are dying. That was, I think, a, a part that's, that uh, moved me a great deal to read. So wonderful book, thank you. You know, I must petition you, I think, perhaps one day for a sequel. We haven't discussed this other word you use. So you talked about money, you talked about addiction. This other word you use that I would love to drill down on perhaps the future is this idea of magic. And your experiences, as you said, with, with great masters, and you know, I know you've, you've been a martial artist, you've been a yogi, you've been a tai chi uh, teacher, and you've done many, as well as a meditator in Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and so on. So I'm very curious about this 
this magic, this aspect of your experiences too, which runs parallel, no doubt, with a lot of what we discussed. So perhaps um, I will, in fact, petition you uh, for a sequel. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Great. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Morty Levine, thank you very much. Okay. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.